This is Todd Raines, Managing Editor at New England Urban Church Planting. The following audio is from Urban Hope, How Gospel Churches Bring New Hope to Forgotten Neighborhoods, a conference held online in February of 2021. Visit newchurchplanting.org to learn more about our work and upcoming events. Hey guys, Tony Morita, pastor of Imago Day Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's an honor to address you as we think together about preaching as hope for the neighborhood. Uh, when I was given that subject, I immediately thought of Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, as it addresses it so powerfully. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to join me there <clears throat> as we read Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We'll read down to verse 29. Paul writes to the Colossian believers, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Father, we pray you would speak to us in this moment as we consider uh, this passage from uh, the Apostle Paul, that we may learn from it, that it may inspire faithfulness to you, to your word, and that you may continue to raise up an army of Christ-centered preachers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, written several years ago now, uh, raises the question, what would happen if Satan took over a city? Uh, and over half century ago, uh, Darnell Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario speculating what would happen in Philadelphia if Satan took over the city. And uh, his answers may surprise you. He says, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday, but Christ would not be preached. If Satan took over a city, he says the result of that would be Christ would not be preached. Now, you may not agree with Barnhouse's entire scenario. I I don't. But you get the point that he's driving at. Satan doesn't mind uh, a moral improvement plan. What he doesn't want is Christ being proclaimed. And for Christless Christianity to be overcome, we need millions of Christ-centered expositors commending Christ in neighborhoods and churches all around the world. And this is one of those passages that that makes our, our assignment really obvious. Notice verse 28, where Paul says his primary subject is a person, him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim. We're not proclaiming a formula. We're not... Uh, proclaiming a moral religious system, we are proclaiming the Savior. And I love how the paraphrase, the old paraphrase in the Phillips translation, paraphrases verse 28. Phillips writes, so naturally we proclaim Christ. 
and that so naturally is picking up on the entire context of the book of Colossians. As many of you will know that this is a book that really speaks of the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus is enough. And in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul shows us that the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. Like we know he is enough because of who he is. And he's been on this, this great, you know, explanation of the, the nature of Christ. He is this and he is that. He, you know, it reminds me of, um, uh, of the movie The Sandlot when, when Smalls, you guys know Smalls, you're killing me, Smalls. Um, he take, gets a baseball that's signed by Babe Ruth and brings it out for the kids to play with because they couldn't find a baseball. And they give him a hard time because he doesn't know who Babe Ruth is and all of the kids just give a different title and a different accolade to Babe Ruth. You know, he's the king of crash. He's the colossus of clout. Uh, he's the great Bambino. And after they go on this whole uh, string of references to, to Babe Ruth, uh, Small says, you mean that's the same guy? And it's that kind of thing that's happening in Colossians 1, 15 to 23, that he says, Jesus is the, invis- the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on, and he is this, and he is this, and he is this. He, he is sovereign over the cosmos. He's sovereign over the church. And, and you follow that train of thought. He's provided reconciliation through the cross, uh, and he's, he's going to reconcile all things uh, in Christ. And so naturally, we proclaim him. Why would we want to proclaim anything else but him? The reality is, though, brothers, there are good men who love Jesus and love the Bible, but they can preach Christless sermons. Because many people assume they're doing this. In fact, uh, one of the greatest preachers in church history, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was speaking on one occasion when a fellow came up to him and says, uh, Dr. Jones, I can't make out whether you are a Quaker or a hyper-Calvinist. Um, you know, you speak about the spirit like a Quaker. You speak about God's sovereignty like a hyper-Calvinist. He says, but there's one thing that's curiously absent in your preaching, and that's the cross and the atonement. And what would you do if someone says, I haven't heard, I've listened to you preach for several weeks, and I haven't heard anything about the atonement. Well, Lloyd-Jones went and locked himself up with a stack of books on the cross, and he came out eventually, and he said, I think I found out what was wrong with my preaching. (laughs) Now, I bring that up just to encourage you. You can change the way you preach. As long as we have breath, we can make improvements, and we can can make sure our focus uh, is Christ uh, and Him crucified, Christ and His resurrection, that Jesus would be central in our proclamation. I know of uh, one individual who was a well-known preacher who had preached through the entire uh, book of Nehemiah. And he said he'd only mentioned Jesus by name in the closing prayer. And he took a class on Christ-centered preaching by the legend uh, Edmund Clowney. And uh, they went back and forth debating on whether or not it was right to preach Christ from the Old Testament in a book like Nehemiah. And eventually, uh, this preacher was won over by the end of the week of class, and he went back to his congregation and apologized to them, and he said, we're going to do Nehemiah all over again. 
and I love those stories because uh, none of us uh, are, are beyond uh, the need of a correction in our preaching here or there. And this is certainly one that, that we, we have to focus on because it's about what we're actually preaching. It says less to do about mechanics and, you know, sermon planning and all the details that go into preaching. Uh, what I'm really passionate about is seeing, uh, again, an army of Christ-centered expositors being raised up and deployed through every nook and cranny of the world as we plant churches and scatter communities of light uh, all over the globe. It's not the lack of the Bible that concerns me, though that does concern me. There are a lot of guys who are using the Bible, nor a lack of affirmation to a doctrinal statement about the gospel. What concerns me is the failure to saturate every single sermon with the gospel. My concern is taking that which is of first importance and making it secondary. The good news of Jesus Christ is the big E on the I chart, but it seems in many places it is overlooked, assumed, minimized, or replaced with moralism. Preaching Christ means preaching his person and his work and his ministry within the context of redemptive history. Preaching Christ is not simply walking up to the podium and mentioning Jesus by name. It doesn't mean wild allegory, where we're just making up crazy things in the Old Testament, for example, nor just leapfrogging to the cross at the end of the sermon. It means following the example of Jesus himself in Luke 24, as Jesus expounded the scriptures and showed those disciples how it all pointed to him. It means that we view all of scripture as Christian scripture. It means we study the little stories in light of the big story. It means that we consider how themes develop across the biblical narrative and climax in Christ. It means that we identify in our reading and preaching of Scripture God's character and care as the one who provides redemption and salvation. It means that we make grace-filled, hope-giving, new covenant applications the way the book of Hebrews does as that book exhorts the people over and over. But there's this rhythm of going back to the kingship and the priestly work of Jesus that enables this kind of uh, perseverance and faithfulness. Well, all of that in Colossians now. The, the people in Colossae needed to know the real Christ. The people were religious. They were, you might say, spiritual, but they were deeply confused, bothered by false teachers. Very similar to our day, depending on your context, whether you're trying to clarify the gospel and differentiate it between a a cult, or you're trying to bring a corrective on, say, uh, Christian nationalism, or uh, the black Hebrew Israelites, or the prosperity gospel, or you have friends drifting into universalism. The great theological confusion that exists in our neighborhoods uh, is not hard to see. And so what does Paul teach us about preaching Christ in such a confused context? And he shows us here again that Jesus must be the all-consuming subject of our ministry because Jesus is the grand subject of biblical revelation and all of human history. Paul reminds us that if we are to preach life-changing sermons, we must keep the life-changer at the heart of the sermon. And so my challenge to you guys is to make the hero of the Bible the hero of every sermon you preach. And let's think about that from these verses. 
I want you to see three three aspects of this text that encourage us to that end. Number one, the priority of Christ-centered exposition, verses 24 to 28. Number two, the purpose of Christ-centered exposition, also in verse 28. And thirdly, the power for Christ-centered exposition in verse 29. First, the priority. Paul begins in verse 24 uh, by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on verse 24. What we need to recognize is that there is, of course, nothing lacking in the atonement, that is, in the the power of the atonement. Christ's death is sufficient. The whole letter speaks to this. Christ's sufferings, it has been said, was for our propitiation. Our afflictions is for propagation. Uh, Christ has uh, suffered and died once for all, but now we are part of this mission, and our mission is one that will entail sacrifice. We will not advance the mission without afflictions. And I think verse 24 is also highlighting the fact that our afflictions are part of God's redemptive purposes. So we should never be surprised by suffering. It's a basic component of discipleship and mission as part of God's redemptive plan. Now, what's amazing in verse 24 is that Paul says he rejoices in these afflictions. How, does, how, how would one rejoice? He's not rejoicing because he enjoys being afflicted per se, but it's because he loves Christ. And we're willing to sacrifice for that which we love. As we often say, love spares no expense. He suffers because he loves the church or loves Christ and he loves his church, right? And from this, this is kind of the context of, of Paul here, giving us a glimpse into his own life, his own heart, his own affections for Jesus and his church. And out of that, then he begins to describe the specifics of this ministry, which are bringing these afflictions. So catch the flow here. Verse 25 to 28. In verse 25, Paul mentions a stewardship that has been received. And that stewardship involves making God's word known. Verse 27, 26 and 27, he moves from a stewardship received to a mystery revealed. And this mystery is the the story of uh, the coming of Christ. Thirdly, he then gives us an approach to follow in verse 28. So first, the stewardship that is received. He says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And that stewardship involves to make the word of God fully known. It's a very similar thing that he says over in 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mystery of God. A steward is kind of like today a, a table waiter where the chef prepares the meal and the waiter comes out to serve it to the people. Uh, They're not to mess with the food, but to deliver it uh, just the way uh, it was prepared. Um, Or you may liken it to uh, the individuals who um, were were tasked with moving the Mona Lisa. Uh, Phil Jensen, a preaching professor in Australia, tells this story of how the world's most famous painting had only been out of the Louvre twice in her history. And he says, what, do you, what would it have been like to have uh, the responsibility of transporting the Mona Lisa once to Tokyo and once to the National Art Gallery in D.C.? 
And you think about the, those guys, what, what is their job when it comes to, you know, transporting the Mona Lisa? Well, it's not to, to look at her and suggest she needs to be edited. You know, like she's, she's ugly. She needs, uh, maybe uh, a weave. You know, she, she, we need to make her look like Beyonce. Uh, you know, their, their job is not to mess with the painting. It's not to edit the painting. It's actually to, uh, present it in its original condition to deliver it the way they received it. And likewise, our job is not to tamper with God's word, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, but to preserve it, to showcase it, to put it on display. And that's, that's his stewardship, and that's our stewardship, to make the word of God fully known. And in saying this, we should also remember that the word is not simply something to expound uh, like you expound, say, the news headlines. It's also a power that is unleashed when it, when it is expounded. Uh, that's the idea you have in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It's the power of the gospel uh, that God is bringing people to life through his word. And that is our task. That's our stewardship. Now, in verses 26 and 7, he then tells us what the word of God is is about primarily. And you catch the, the, uh, the, the symmetry in this text when he says in 25, his task is to make the word of God fully known. And then he says, uh, he tells us in verse 26 that this word is about a mystery. And 27, he tells us what the mystery is, right? Notice 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, all around Asia Minor, uh, there, were, there was, uh, you know, these mystery cults. And many people thought Christianity was a mystery cult. After it all, you know, it had a mystery. But this, this was way different than the mystery cults of the false teachers. It's, it's a story that is revealed in Jesus Christ. It's not a mystery like Sherlock Holmes is a mystery. But it's rather something that has now been revealed. And it's the story of God's unfolding plan for the world, his plan of redemption through the Messiah. The mystery was hidden by God until it could be revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. So although elements of God's design were already known uh, because of the prophets proclaimed it, aspects were still hidden until God revealed them in the coming of Christ. So you may think of this mystery as redemptive history or the story of the Bible, this ongoing story that looks ahead to Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. Now, this is one of the texts among many that shows us how the Bible is telling one big story of which Christ is the hero. And we have to clarify this for people. I was not raised to understand the Bible like this. Um, I never heard anything like this. The Bible seemed to be just a jumble of collected sayings and disconnected stories. Um, or it was just a book of inspiring virtues. Um, but the Bible, as it's been said, is a hymn book. H-I-M. It is about him. And it's possible to know a lot of stories in the Bible, but not know the story of the Bible. And so our job until we die is to make this story known to exalt Christ week in and week out. And if we don't do this, people will end up doing really bad things with the Bible. Uh, they'll look at Solomon's temple, for example, and conclude from that that the takeaway is we should spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on an opulent uh, church building. Uh, when that temple is part of a theme that is pointing ahead to Jesus, who is greater than Solomon and greater than the temple, 
or people will just moralize the Old Testament. And so you just make these, these moral, uh, moralisms like the book of Ruth being about, you know, being nice to your mother-in-law, which, which I'm a fan of. But it's doing more than just uh, describing the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. It's showing how that story is part of the grand story of redemption that brought us our Messiah. Now, he says a few things about this mystery that is about Christ. And the one is that we're included, right? Christ in you, that is plural. That is to to refer to uh, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. We are involved in this story. And then he notes the intimacy of Christ coming when he says Christ is in you. So God is, you know, in the Old Testament, he's dwelling in a tabernacle. He's in a tent. And now we are taught that Christ is in you. Remember the, the book of Exodus. The first 18 chapters of Exodus is the God who delivers. Chapters 19 to 24 is the God who demands. So he tells us people how to live in light of what he's done. And then chapters 25 to 40 is really, I think, the climax of the book. And it's after describing the God who delivers and the God who demands, it's the God who dwells. It's the God who uh, wants to be with his people. And you see it in all those ramskins and yarns and garments and furniture and all of those things. Uh, you see in verse uh, Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And in the last paragraph of the book of Exodus, God's tent is there and this cloud is about it and the glory of God fills the tabernacle. That's how the book climaxes. God wanting to get close to his people. It's like he cannot get close enough to them. You'll do crazy things to be near the one you love, won't you? I remember when I was dating my my now wife, Kimberly, that I would drive hours and hours and hours to go see her, and it would only be for a short time before I had to get back. Um, but you make that sacrifice because you want to be with the person you love. And that's what you see with our God here. Christ insists on being as close to his people as he could possibly be. He wants to be in you. So that's one aspect of this mystery, which is awesome. And then he moves from describing the intimacy here to describe the inspiration of the revelation of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The indwelling Christ guarantees us of the glory that is to come. The hope is in us. We can expect to share in his glory because he is in us now. And this inspires perseverance. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's a stewardship received. That's what we're doing in Christ-centered exposition. There's a mystery revealed. That's what we're making much of week in and week out. And he adds, verse 28, now an approach for us to follow. He says, him we proclaim. You know, it's it's a we. So I take that as a a community of expositors, a community of preachers. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So in this this approach, he shows us here how comprehensive this approach is with the, the uh, actions of proclaiming, warning, teaching, and applying wisdom. But it's not only a comprehensive approach that we do all of those things in Christ-centered exposition, but it's also a comprehensive audience. Notice the repetition of 
the word everyone. So let's think about these two for a moment. We proclaim, kato galamon, that is to announce. You can hear the word angel in that. To proclaim something far and wide. To proclaim that the victory has been won. That's what we're doing in proclamation. We're not giving advice. We're heralding the news. And then warning. We warn like a prophet. Oftentimes, and sometimes this depends on the book of the Bible that you're in, but you'll have to do a good bit of warning because people will be tempted to drift away into false doctrine or drift away into immorality. And so a good expositor is like a a forest ranger, aware of the landscape and alerting people to the wildlife uh, in the area. There was much of that in Colossae. That's one of the main reasons uh, this letter is is written. You remember how Paul told the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian elders, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. And so there's a good bit of that. Uh, when it comes to exposition. But we not only proclaim like an evangelist and not only teach like a, or warn like a prophet, but we teach like a theologian. As he says here, we're teaching everyone. We're called to make disciples of all nations by teaching. And God has revealed himself in the scriptures and his word must be taught. And then we impart wisdom like a sage. As he says, we do this with all wisdom. Now, I think the question here that this answers is, is how does the gospel relate to all of life? That's really, I think, the idea here of presenting uh, all of this uh, uh, using wisdom. He he later adds down in chapter 2 that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in chapter 3, he begins to talk about really practical things, and he ties them all to the gospel. Right? So he says in chapter 3, verse 11, that, that race is a gospel issue, that it's tied to our understanding of the gospel. Or forgiveness is a gospel issue, chapter 3, verse 13, uh, that as we think about how the Lord has forgiven us, we forgive others. Anxiety, uh, we have to remember that the peace of Christ uh, it, uh, rules where the word of Christ dwells. And so the, the peace that we need to experience is tied to the gospel. And then he just says everything is uh, about Christ and the gospel in chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, uh, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So every ethical demand is rooted back in the gospel and shaped by the gospel and empowered by it. And so when we do Christ-centered exposition, it's a very comprehensive approach. We are at times announcing the news, declaring the good news. We are at times warning people of false doctrine and and, and immorality. We are at times teaching, getting into the details, trying to tease out the implications of things and why we believe things. And there are at times where we're trying to apply the gospel to the practical details of everyday life. That's, uh, that's quite a task. Now, one other note about this picked up from Matthew chapter 23 is that this kind of ministry may get you killed. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the early apostles and people around the world today are not getting martyred because they're doing Old Testament trivia. Uh, they are suffering persecution because they're preaching Christ. Hear, hear what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, I send you prophets, so warn like a prophet, and wise men with all wisdom, and scribes, teachers, some of whom you will kill and crucify. 
and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Christ-centered preaching is offensive because the cross is offensive, and therefore it's dangerous. And we need to be ready for verse 24 that we started off with in this text, and that is the afflictions that may come for being a Christ-centered expositor. We're not doing this in some isolated area, you know, devoid of criticism and attack, even if you're not going to face uh, great physical persecution. Uh, there is warfare involved in Christ-centered exposition. We need to be reminded of that. So notice then from the, the comprehensive approach to the comprehensive audience with the phrase warning everyone, teaching everyone, presenting everyone. So who needs Christ-centered preaching? Everyone. Paul's emphasis on everyone in this particular context might be a subtle statement about what we've labeled as the Colossian heresy through the years, uh, which was a whole jumble of various uh, uh, beliefs, pagan and Jewish beliefs um, uh, combined. And there were some people apparently part of this Colossian heresy that had basically developed kind of an elitist club and they had special knowledge. Uh, you see that kind of phrase pop up a lot. So you had those who were in the know and those who were not in the know. And those who were in the know had the upper hand on all the spiritual things. And Paul is saying here, we proclaim this to everyone. We warn everyone. We teach everyone because salvation in Christ and growth in Christ is available to everyone. It's not some elitist special club. It's for every Joe Schmo out there. Right? It's not for a clique. It's not for the elite. It's not for the clergy only. It's not for aspiring ministers only. It is for the world because we have a king who is not a tribal deity but the king of the nations. We have a global gospel and therefore we have a global audience. That's what people need in New York and it's what people need in Nigeria. Somebody to open the Bible and point people to Jesus. In fact, I have a vivid memory of being in Nigeria about a dozen or so years ago. And we were invited to go to visit a leper colony, which I'd never been to anything like that before and, and haven't since either. And we got there and I assumed that me and our team were just going to visit people and try to encourage people. But uh, the, the chaplain who was there uh, rounded everybody up and in the middle of this village, this isolated village, and he said, now Pastor Tony will preach. I had no idea I was preaching. Uh, I didn't have a Bible. Uh, and so what do you say if you're addressing a group of lepers in, who are living in, in poverty? You know, what you don't do is what a lot of guys do with the pulpit. Like, let me give you five steps on how to raise teenagers or uh, five ways to in, improve your financial uh, planning life or whatever. What the people in Nigeria need uh, is the gospel in that particular leper colony. So as best as I could, I quoted Romans chapter 8, for I consider the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing next to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I just continued on, and then I basically said to them, you know, you are no different than us. Like you, we too are dying. And like you, our only hope is in the gospel. And one day, this suffering will give way to glory. And I have a picture of this lady who's standing behind me while I'm preaching and she has no fingers because of the leprosy and she's lifting them up in, in worship. 
And uh, just a great reminder to me to keep the main thing, the plain thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And to know this is what the world needs to everyone everywhere. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, we move then from the priority of Christ-centered exposition to the purposes of Christ-centered exposition. And you see here a couple of things that are brought out in this phrase, that, so there's the purpose clause, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he says here that Christ-centered exposition has a sanctifying purpose and not just an evangelistic purpose. You see how he says, why are we preaching Christ to mature people? to mature people who are Christians. And so we're, we're proclaiming him, we're exalting him, we're applying the implications of his work uh, to Christians so that they may be uh, mature in him. That's teased out more down in chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. Now, oftentimes you get the question, like, shouldn't we be practical with, with, with Christians in order to see them grow? And the answer is yes, we, we do. But doing practical instruction doesn't mean we separate that from our union with Christ in the gospel. Uh, Paul shows us, I think, how you do that again in chapter 3 as he is looking at practical issues and then tying them back to the work of Christ. Other people, when they hear that we're, we're going to keep preaching Christ, all of his beauty, um, in order to mature people, that, that will somehow uh, you know, get boring. And I, and I think sometimes preachers can be boring, um, but uh, the problem is not with the content of Christ and his glory. Right, Paul says that we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, which means we'll never get to the bottom of Jesus. As long as we are preaching and teaching Christ, we will never run out of material. Or some will say, well, can't we, shouldn't we be a lot deeper than heralding Christ? And I want to say you never outgrow Jesus. Uh, the thesis statement, in fact, of Colossians, I think, is chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Just as you received Christ, keep walking in Christ. And we need to remember how people actually change. And that is by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. Jesus changes us from the inside out. And so while there are various aspects of Christ that we need to bring out, it's often been said the gospel is like a beautiful diamond, and there are different emphases uh, as we're preaching the gospel week in and week out. But, but that's what we're focused on. And as people see and behold the beauty of Jesus, their affections are changed, and consequently their behavior has changed. So he, he says here that this Christ-centered exposition has a sanctifying purpose, a maturing purpose, not just an evangelistic purpose, though it does, of course. But he says also that Christ-centered exposition has an eternal purpose and not just a temporal purpose. And that is picked up in this phrase that we may present everyone. That is the idea of presenting your people to God. In other words, preaching is about getting people ready to die. And how do we get people ready to die? Well, right here it is, isn't it? We're expounding the scriptures to make the word of God fully known, and we're exalting Jesus that we may present them to God. It's not just a temporal purpose, and people have done this with preaching throughout the years, trying to, 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 to be so uh, practical about temporal things on this earth and just having people not even consider uh, uh, the scope 
and significance of eternity. And so we preach with eternity in view as we herald Christ. Thirdly, finally, he moves from the priority of Christ-centered exposition then to the purposes of Christ-centered exposition to the power for Christ-centered exposition. And that is picked up in verse 29 when he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, which that he powerfully works within me. I'm always struck by Paul's work ethic here as he uses the combination of words. For this I toil, which means to take a beating. <laughs> you feel like that in preaching a lot? Um, he's, he's worked... Uh, Athletically, the word here, struggling, is a word taken from uh, uh, athletic world. Uh, ministry is just that. It's, it's laborious. It's strenuous. It's tiresome. You think about just how exhausting it can be. Just read some of church history. Uh, Luther reported, Martin Luther reportedly fell into bed some nights because he was so tired. And one writer said he didn't change his sheets for a year, which is, which is gross. But um, just an exhausted guy. Uh, Wesley and Whitfield exhaust me just reading about them. Moody's bedtime prayer was often, Lord, I'm tired, amen. And I know that feeling. You feel it on Mondays a lot. Um, but notice here the hope of this text. While ministry is exhausting, Christ's power is sufficient. For this I told, struggling not with my energy, with all his energy, which he powerfully works within me. The one Christ in you is powerfully working through you. And he is supplying the energy to do the work of exposition. And I love this about Christ-centered exposition. Jesus is not only the subject of our proclamation. He's also the source of power to do it. He provides us with everything we need. So naturally we proclaim him by the power that he provides. This is good news, guys. Here is the source of our strength, Christ in you. Our strength is not in how long we've been a Christian, how much we know about the Bible, how long we've been in ministry, but it's in our union with Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the Spurge, Charles Spurgeon, who could say that one could say this about his own life, verse 29 of his speaking of his toil and his struggle, but how he testified to the presence and power of Christ within him to enable him to do all that he did. He once said, no one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There is the weekly sermon to be revised uh, besides that, a weekly average of 500 letters to answer. Then he adds, this, however, is only half my duty, for there are innumerable churches established by my friends, which I am closely connected with, to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. At his 50th birthday, a list of 66 organizations was read that he had founded and conducted. One person said of him, this list of associations instituted by his genius and superintended by his care were more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of 50 ordinary men. He typically read six substantial books a week and could remember what he read and where to find it. He produced 140 books of his own and he worked hours and hours, sometimes 18 a day, which I don't advise, by the way. But the missionary David Livingston 
who also was a workhorse, once asked him, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon replied, you have forgotten. There are two of us. That's the good news. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is not just the grand subject of our preaching, though he is, of course, but he's also the source of energy to do it. And so as you think about preaching in your neighborhood, preaching as hope for the neighborhood, let's stay focused on Christ as we proclaim him from his word. Let's rely on his power and let's just keep preaching Christ until we see Christ. And on that day, we'll be glad that we did. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you.